I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, listeners. Since you can't come to the London Review Bookshop at the moment to enjoy our events, we're bringing them to you at home. While we're closed, our new podcast episodes will feature guests who you might, under better circumstances, have been listening to live in Berry Place, as well as previously unreleased gems from our archives. You can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. I'm Deborah Friedel, one of the editors at the London Review of Books. My guest is Chloe Disky, who is going to talk to me about a new book called Why Didn't You Just Do What You Were Told? It's a collection of essays written by Chloe's mother the writer Jenny Diskey, who died of cancer in 2016. Over 25 years, Jenny published more than 200 essays in the London Review of Books, and Jenny's longtime editor, Mary Kay Wilmers, has picked her favorite pieces to go between hardcovers. Chloe Diskey has worked as a journalist and an editor, and she's written the books afterward. In it, she says that the essays are about what they are about, but they are essentially about Jenny, and that as an essayist, While Jenny slipped into the form as easily as she slipped into her daily bath, the writing space that came naturally to her was, like her bath, a place of rigor and hard, serious thinking. Chloe, thank you so much for doing this with me. Um, In the first essay in the collection, Moving Day, uh, first published in the early 90s, Jenny writes that her idea of heaven is, I do nothing. I get on with a new novel, smoke, drink coffee, smoke, write, stare at the ceiling, smoke, write, lie on the sofa, drink coffee, write. She says, this is what I was made for. What would she have made of the lockdown? What would she have noticed? Um, She would have loved lockdown. And I'm sure she would have been writing about how she loved lockdown. Yeah, probably not. No, she wouldn't have noticed because she didn't, as she said, she didn't go out very much. And I mean, we used to have a car, but um, it used to break down so regularly because she never used it and so the local garage said she must take it out for a drive once a week you know she just naturally wouldn't go out of the door and like things how she liked them which was always locked down in her own head anyway so yeah it would have it would have been fine but obviously she would be very worried about the state of the earth and humanity too but in terms of how it affected her it it wouldn't have done. What was that like for you though having a mother who you know, really didn't like interruptions, who who wanted solitude? Well, quite taxing. There was a lot of, you know, you have to learn how to be on your own, which I did pretty quickly, actually. Um, but I could also ask for her attention and she would give it to me very regularly. So although she needed her space, she was also very available for me emotionally and really knew when I needed her and could sense it. So... 
I don't know. I, I guess we we formed our own pattern, and I could see when she need, needed to turn off. It wasn't turning off, but needed to to be with herself, and she she could see when I needed her. So it kind of it it did work, although it was complicated, and I could be annoying, and I would knock on her door, and you know, um, I I was a normal child, <laughs> so it worked as as any anything would work. But we were very very. Um, Careful and patient with each other, I say. You appear as a character in quite a few of these pieces, sometimes referred to as the heir apparent. The essays in this book are arranged chronologically, so we sort of see you growing up. You know, I have a few questions about this. You know, what was it like, first of all, just to, to encounter yourself in your mother's work? It was very irritating. I didn't like it, but I allowed her to do it. There are a few times when I was younger and she did it and I didn't really understand it um but when I was a teenager I asked her to stop and I think she did pretty much and then she would always show me what she was going to print and I would give it my seal of approval or not but generally it wasn't me and it kind of wasn't her and me together it was a it was a character thing and so I felt okay about it and it was funny and fine there was you know there was nothing that I felt awkward about how she represented me or anything. So it was all right. But um, I, I quite like anonymity in a way. So I, I've struggled with that a little bit. You say that she created herself as a character in, in the nonfiction. How was that character different from the Jenny you knew? They were similar in quite a lot of ways, but I suppose the character that she she put down was quite similar to the character that she took out with her to dinner parties and parties when when she went so irregularly, but when she did go. And it was slightly more composed and her, it was all her, but careful. And the, the more playful side of her was subdued a bit. So, yeah, she she was just quite fun and silly and normal, you know. <laughs> Um, but there were there were a lot of layers put on when she went out and when when she wrote as well, but not inauthentic ones, just um and not particularly ones that protected her either. They it was just another another aspect to her. And I mean the thing is about her writing is it was so open about her insecurities and about all the stuff that most people keep in. I guess there was just more of it and it was said in a slightly more anxious way she was always very open um and at home she was more playfully and more relaxedly open slightly different one of the essays you're in is a feeling for ice um which was the seed for jenny's book skating to antarctica and in it she writes that she last saw her mother when she was a teenager in 1966 and then afterwards she didn't know where her mother was or indeed if her mother was even alive and Jenny writes that you decided to investigate, and then the rest of the piece sort of you know, reveals what what you found. I mean, what what was that like? Well, I yeah, I did decide to investigate, but I I want I do wonder looking back whether there was a part of her that wanted me to want to investigate because then she did write a whole book about it afterwards, so that you know she must have been interested, um, and she certainly wouldn't have wanted to find out whether her mum was alive or dead because if she was alive then my mum might have been would have been preferred to have 
been dead, I'd say. So it was a bit of a risk and not one that she personally was willing to take. But I think she felt by the time I was 17, 17, 18, something like that, you know, I should be allowed to know about my grandmother, although we never called her my grandmother. How did she refer to her? My my mother or... I don't think by her name, Rini. My my mum. Did Jenny talk to you about her childhood or did you have to learn it from her pieces? Oh, all the time. Right from when, as soon as I could listen or she could talk to me, she talked to me about all the stories of her childhood. So, yeah, I guess it was pretty close. When I was growing up, there was a lot of talk on the way to school. I remember in the car, she would tell me about her mum and... As, you know, her dad, all, all the things that are in all her books, skating or the 60s book, and all of them, she told me a lot. <laughs> what would she tell you? How did she explain it to you when, when you were little? Well, it was odd because mm. she talks about it as if it, it was a fairy tale to her. And that's how she talked to me about it as well. I, that's why I didn't really believe it. And I, I never really imagined that her mum was alive or really even existed. It took me until I was 17, 18 to think, hang on a minute, this person actually might, you know, has a life and isn't an imaginary character in a fairy story or, you know, because I think, yeah, I think she kind of distanced herself from that period by telling the stories in a way. And I would be enthralled by it, but also it would kind of reassure me in a way that our life was fine and I think that was part of it that you know I was having a good time and she was a good mum and I was a good daughter and it was nothing like how it could be it was strange but it just didn't seem real and they were great stories can you tell us one yeah well she I mean she used to tell a story quite a lot about all her furniture being taken away from her flat when they lived in Paramount Court which is on Tottenham Court Road she grew up there I think until she was 13 and her ma- her dad had left and her mum went crazy. I think she was sort of fluffing at the mouth uh, on the bed. And they had no money. Her mum had never worked and didn't want to work. The furniture was taken away. And mum's mum, my grandmother, dragged my mum to St Martin's in the field, I think. And they were Jewish, but for some reason she was attracted to, to that church and went in to pray, perhaps, but mum was left out on the steps just wondering what the hell was going on. I mean, it's that kind of story. There wasn't a happy ending or any anything. It was just dramatic. <laughs> and so then I would feel sorry for the child and my mum. So I think that was part of the reason why I knew she needed to be alone and to work. And I, I kind of looked after her in a way because I, I saw the child in her, which she told me about so much when, when I was younger. So you're now a trainee psychotherapist. Yeah. Do do you think this is because of Jenny? I would have thought so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is about my mum and why she survived and could write and think is because she she really had a very good sense of other people's minds and her own. She was incredibly empathetic and understanding of people close to her and so when she was telling the stories it wasn't she wasn't saying my mum was so dreadful it was so terrible for me there wasn't any of that she was thinking about her situation and 
the sort of context around it as well. And so, you know, I always got a sense from her about the importance of why people are how they are and a sort of lack of blame. And I think that's helped me quite a lot and been really good for my training, actually. She comes across as someone who's really an autodidact. I mean, you know, at least her account in the essays for herself is that you know, she's always being thrown out of school, leaving school. Is that true? I mean, was she really sort of self-made that way? Well, she d- I don't think she took an exam ever. I think for her A-levels, her dad died just before she was about to take them and she didn't. And I got a feeling she did anthropology at UCL when I was younger. Must have been in the early 80s. And she didn't do the exams for that either. So she, she hasn't got a degree. So yeah, just like Doris, actually, both of them are self-educated. And then how, how would she get you to do, do your homework? You know, if she, would, would you be able to say back to her, but you didn't do it? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I did my homework fine. And she, she helped me quite a lot because, I mean, she did the teacher training. She was a teacher for years, did English teaching. Um, and I mean, that part of her that I described, which was, you know, really empathetic and very um, patient, you know, was always present. And, you know, she was a fantastic teacher and was great at helping with my homework. And um, she could be in the world. So before she was a writer, she she did do her teacher training and she went out and she worked at Haggerston School and did all sorts of things. But it wasn't what she, what she wanted to do, which was be alone and write on her own. But it was... It was mainly about thinking, um, being able to understand herself and the world. And although she was very good at teaching, it didn't allow her to to do what she needed, which was to think as much as um, she could. So, Can you tell me a bit about Jenny's relationship with Doris Lessing and then your relationship with, with Doris Lessing? Yeah, well... Um, and one writes about her relationship with Doris Lessing in her final book, which um, Ingratitude, which was a um, collection of LRB essays that she wrote as she was dying, when she was diagnosed with cancer. And it kind of shot her back to her past and how, how she was with Doris when she was adopted, well, not officially adopted by her at the age of 14 or 15. And, you know, in that in those essays, she writes about an incredibly complicated relationship. And Doris comes out of it quite badly, I think. And I, I just, when I saw them together, it was, as families are, it was complicated. And but they also got on. And I think there was an enormous amount of respect, from Doris's side anyway, for my mum. And it was odd because mum could really really make Doris laugh in a way that I haven't seen her do really with anyone because my mum was very funny and could somehow excite Doris. So, I mean, they had the usual kind of annoyances with each other that family members do because it it did feel like a family. Doris really did take mum on 
and mum felt a lot for her and you know throughout my childhood Doris was around all the time and I used to stay at her house and Doris would be you know just we would discuss everything with her she loomed large but not as large once mum's career started to go and get better so I think yeah she they lost contact towards you know after 2000 probably they weren't as close but I think in ingratitude she forgets the influence that Doris had or the, the good influence that she was um, as well as how complicated I mean they were they're both the the most difficult people, Doris and my mum, they really are. So the combination uh, must have been quite a thing for both of them because Doris could be very unemotional. And although my mum was quite clipped and could keep things in, she was incredibly emotional and very open about her feelings in a way that Doris wasn't. So I think early on that probably caused quite a lot of friction. In the main, throughout at least my, until I was about 20, it it all worked. We had Christmases together and we would go around for tea there. We were a normal, slightly dysfunctional family, but fine. That's the part of Jenny's story that, that does seem like a fairy tale. I mean, I know that in one of the essays in this collection, Jenny is a teenager. I mean, described it as a Cinderella story, taken in sight unseen by, you know, a great writer, you had heard that Jenny was having a rough time just from her, you know, from her son, who is one of Jenny's classmates. It's, what's interesting to me is, you know, Doris Lessing wrote versions of, of Jenny in, in her novels. And, and Jenny seemed only to write a little bit about Doris Lessing after she died. And, you know, just at the very end of, of Jenny's career, I wondered if, you know, if Jenny was sort of saving it up, if, if Jenny was always planning to write about you know, Lessing in, in her work and didn't get a chance. Well, they both agreed that they weren't going to write about each other or talk about their relationship while either of them were alive. And then I think, yeah, mum, mum just decided that she wanted it out there. I think, I mean, maybe partly because I think it was just an incredibly important experience for my mum. And as my mum wrote at the beginning of Ingratitude. She was a writer and it, she, her life was there for her to write about and she didn't really feel that she should be censored. So it, it seemed natural, but it, I mean, I found it uncomfortable. And I think she might have written something a little bit more considered and generous later on. She was really ill when she was writing that. And scared, I guess, of, you know, what was going to happen. So it may have been a different book later on, but maybe not. might have been even, you might have found even more to say. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In these essays, she describes herself as 
sort of always knowing that she wanted to be a writer and what sort of tortured her and you know, made her depressed when she was young was sort of not writing. Where do you think that came from? She didn't know writers. Where, where did she get the idea that, you know, I'm a writer? I don't know. <laughs> I think she just loved fiction when she was younger and that helped her to escape. And she loved words. It's hard to say, isn't it? Did either of her parents give her books or, or take her to the library? Or? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think her mum didn't read, but her dad was very bright and would take her to museums and I don't know about the library, but, you know, he, he was very well read and he would have gone to Cambridge. He was a kind of, well, he was a con man in the end, but he was part of a large Jewish immigrant family living in rooms in the East End, but he was the bright spark. I think his family were furriers and a lot was expected of him. And so he he had a huge amount of charisma and talent and he could talk wonderfully and he would seduce anyone and everyone around him, including my mum, in terms of she she just adored him. And, yeah, I think think he he read a lot and had books around and interested mum in the world. But I would have thought she would have been like that anyway. She She was always receptive and independent and interested. And always, I mean, there's... a There's an archive here, a a box of her stuff from when she was in school. And she wanted to be a writer then before meeting Doris and and being around writers. So it really made it harder in a way. I mean, there were more opportunities once she was around Doris and everyone, but it wasn't the thing that got her going or made her more confident. It actually probably impeded it. Although she may, may or may not have been alive if Doris hadn't done what she'd done so it's all very complicated oh that that's interesting that you think that being with Doris impeded her as a writer rather than a sort of laying on of of hands you know anyone who sort of knows just the bare bones of the story would think oh of course she became a novelist you know she lived with Doris Lessing and got to observe you know a, a writer at work how hard Doris Lessing worked I think it's quite the opposite I think she did get to observe how Doris worked and that helped because Doris just worked hard and so mum got to understand that, that, you know, that's what was, what the job was. But when, I guess when, when Doris wrote to her and mum was in a mental hospital trying to recover from, she just tried to, she just taken loads of sleeping pills. It would have been quite extraordinary because it, it was the only writer probably that she'd ever met and she wanted to be a writer. And so that, I mean, the whole thing must have blown her mind. Although she seemed very confident on paper, you know, in a way, it would have been completely terrifying for her turning up at Doris's and feeling that she wasn't a writer. It's easier to feel like you're a writer if you're not amongst writers, really, isn't it? You can carry on that dream, but to suddenly be with with someone so successful must have been very difficult for her. Probably, you know, it's why she didn't write properly until she was in her mid-30s and able to be a bit more independent from Doris. Did Doris Lessing do nothing to encourage her? Would your mum not even have told her that she wanted to be a writer? No, I think she did tell her to be a writer. And uh, there's something that she wrote, I can't, I think it might have been in Skating, or, or, which is in this, an extract in this book, was that Doris said, oh, why don't you just write about your life? You've got some interesting stories and somebody else can kind of, 
um, whip it into oh, shape that's right. or something like that. And your mother was so offended because divorce last thing it said someone would need to clean up your sentences. And your mother was, you know, hold on, you know, I can write my sentences. Yeah, that's right. I think so. I'm not sure whether mum had shown Doris any of her work, but she would have known that my mum could form sentences <laughs> when she spoke. Because, I mean, that that is what my mum could do around the table, at least. So it there was a bit of competition and difficulty there, definitely. And I think... Doris didn't make it easy for mum and didn't show appreciation of her work in the way that my mum needed and wanted for, I, you know, all sorts of reasons. Who did encourage her? I don't know. I did. Um, <laughs> I guess my dad. There is, you know, there were very few people who she was really close to and her husband, Ian, later on. But she pretty much has been a loner all her life. So she she had to do it on her own. She, she encouraged herself. And that's what, what's been very important about the LRB, actually, because I think once she found somewhere where she could be really established and settled, that, that really helped her writing and I wouldn't say her confidence, but just made it easier. So um, the first reviews of this book have started to appear. And in one of them, Kate Calloway in The Guardian She's written this gushing review. She says that Jenny's sort of the most undeceived of writers and surprising. Who else would have combined reviewing a biography of Dennis Thatcher with the reading of Melville's Moby Dick? But Calloway also asks, she says, the question arises, how much did depression feed her writing? And I wasn't sure what I thought. Can depression feed someone's writing? And I, I wondered what you thought. I don't think it's very easy to write when you're depressed. Yeah. I don't think she wrote during depressions, but perhaps wrote to avoid them. Oh, interesting. She, she started yeah. writing just after a very severe, probably the most severe, apart from right towards the end of her life, depression that um, she had when I was around anyway. And she really broke down and didn't do anything, but then had some therapy and um, and started to, to write her first novel after that. But she was a bit better in order for her to do that. So, yeah, I think the writing warded off the depression. When she was very depressed, she could, all she could do was lie there, maybe think. And, I mean, all, all, all of that, all the feeling and, and the wondering about oneself that one does um, during those times was helpful for the writing later on. I worked at the LRB for in some of the years, not, not all the years, you know, in which Jenny was writing these pieces. And what was so wonderful about having Jenny as a contributor is that you felt you could almost send her any book and she wouldn't return it. You know, she would return with a piece, um, almost no matter the subject. And I wondered, are there things that, that you wish that we'd asked her to, to write about? You know, are there gaps that you, know, you feel she, she didn't get to? Not really. I would have thought that she would tell you if there was anything that she was wanting to write about or could write it in a diary. I didn't feel that she kind of held back or that there was any aspect. No, I, I think she covered everything. <laughs> she liked writing about people, didn't she? I think that, that, that a lot of the essays that worked really well was when she could focus on a on a character, really get into them and think around them and about herself through them or through through what they did. Yeah, that, that seemed to be where her writing and her thinking was strongest. 
It, it's sad for me that, that she died before we could ask her to write about Donald Trump. These last few weeks when Mary Trump's book about her uncle and her great uncle came out, this sort of you know, account of bad men, I mean, that would have been you know, the book we would immediately have sent to Jenny. Yeah, that sounds like something that she should be able to to tackle pretty well. And what what did you find? What how was it for you working with her? Oh, so one of my colleagues, Christian Lawrenson, once wrote a piece in in New York Magazine about what it was like in the office when Jenny delivered a piece. So the the way it works at the LRB is we have incredibly one editorial email address, so everyone sees you know, what comes in. And it's true, when, when Jenny would deliver a piece, work would stop. People would open the attachment and you'd hear people laughing. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I do remember when, when I first started at the LRB, you know, we'd have these you know, commissioning meetings. We'd, we'd sit around a table and anxiously discuss, you know, the books that had come in and who should do what. And I, I remember thinking, it brought me back to sort of ninth grade biology class when, you know, I remember our teacher told us that if you just didn't know an answer you know, on a multiple choice test, always circle osmosis, that in biology, you know, you had a chance at least to be right. And I remembered in these commissioning meetings thinking, ooh, the equivalent, you know, to osmosis is either to say Frank Kermode or Jenny Diskey, and that you at least had a chance, you know, not to embarrass yourself, that, you know, someone might say, oh, you know, Jenny has too many books at the moment, you know, find someone else, but that you wouldn't sound stupid, no matter what the subject was. No, she that, that's rare. Those essays for the LRB because they, you know, they really gave her the space that she needed. I think to, well, to to go off on a tangent, I suppose, and to to really think about life and death <laughs> in a way you can't in a whatever thousand word piece for the Guardian or whatever. It's a it's a different form, isn't it? And it suited her so well. And also, I think she felt that the editors at the LRB, particularly Mary Kay, wanted her to do what she wanted to do. And that's, that kind of freedom um, is what she needed, I think. In preparing for this, I, I typed her name into my my email just to see what would come up, you know, if, you know, Jenny's old emails. And I found an exchange with her from just a few years before she died. I was asking her what she'd like for her contributor note, you know, on page two of every issue, we say what our writers are up to. And I, I was struck by, by hers. I'd, I'd forgotten this. And, and I don't think we published it because I think we probably needed something that was just a few words long. But she wrote back to me, JD writes novels, nonfiction, essays, reviews, and so on, and knits. Eventually, she hopes to knit novels, nonfiction, etc., etc., in a small dark room without interruptions. She does not consider fiction and nonfiction to be opposite categories. And then I, the next email was me sort of asking her if there, there was some publicity reason, how many novels did you write? And she wasn't sure. And she f- had to check online and, you know, get back to me a day later and say, you know, 10 novels. But do you think that, that that's right? That she, yeah, she, she didn't see a distinction really between being a writer of fiction and, and a writer of nonfiction. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. A lot of what she wrote as fiction were memories because that they're, they're the, they were the same things that she used to tell me in the car um, going to school. So, yeah, I mean, she she liked the idea that nonfiction could be fiction and fiction could be nonfiction, and there there weren't any boundaries 
really. I mean, she talks in one of the pieces, doesn't she, about sleep and how she liked that, the bit between being awake and being asleep, where everything is just mixed up and murky and um, undefined. So, yeah, that's where that's where she says she feels most, she felt most comfortable. I wonder whether that was a bit of a play as well, but it's how she could make her best work. One thing I. I never quite got a sense of from her is which writers did she really like? Who did she rate? We, we never asked her, I, I think, to, to do literary criticism like that. And I, who, who did she learn from, you know, if anyone? I think she really admired Nabokov. And I'm pretty sure she had Lolita by her bed during the final year, her final year. And who else did she like? She, she didn't really talk about fiction enormously, to be honest. She read a lot of um, science books, a lot of books about computers, and she loved um, catalogues. I don't know what she would have read if I had if the LRB hadn't sent her lots of books in a way sometimes. She would read a lot of books in preparation for her fiction and her nonfiction, but mainly her fiction about Freud and Marx and Darwin or the Bible, all, all those things. Fiction, not so much. Movies, yes. There were a lot, she, was, she watched a lot of movies, a lot of thrillers. But I think Nabokov was the one for her. I see that she once told an interviewer, I don't think I've changed since I was three years old. I might have a bigger vocabulary, but not much bigger. And what, what strikes me looking at these essays is, I mean, even though they're, they're for quite a long period of time, the voice really is consistent. If they weren't dated, I'm not sure that I could put them in order chronologically. No, and right from the start as well, because she starts with a bang in that first piece, which I think is, is the first piece in the book, and I think was the first piece that she wrote for the LRB, and it was a diary piece of her three weeks alone. And it's a sort of introduction to herself in a way. But it's so sort of strong and firm about who she is and how she writes and what she does and how she wants to live. And that, yeah, it doesn't really go away throughout the whole book. It's there right until the end. I mean, I think that there are certain waves you can see, or at least I, I feel now I can see, which may not be true, maybe just be me kind of making it up. But I think in the, the middle period, perhaps after 2000, um, between 2010 and 2006, I felt that the essays she became very kind of established and there were some really good pieces then. And then maybe towards the end, I think she, she got a bit cross about being old and ill. Um, and that comes through in a couple of pieces. But it's, yeah, as you say, it's, it's still her. And yeah, when when she was a child and dressed in frills and lace and silk, by her mum, who wanted her to be someone completely different from who she was. You know, you can still see in photos that kind of, you know, steely reluctance. And she was obviously always very stubborn and knew who she was. Um, otherwise, she really wouldn't have survived, I don't think, because she, she did have such a bad start. But she was very clever, and that helped. Chloe, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. 
And just a reminder that you can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order.